0: faith or without religious institutions Uh, more than half think that there would be really good charitable work without any people of faith doing that and this is actually not at all true much of what is happening for good in our communities around the world actually happened because of christian organizations and christian individuals who
1: are serving the the common good in their areas this is just another indicator of how the
0: relevance of faith is rising in fact what we're seeing across so many different cultures is that many people believe that you can live a pretty good life without Christianity. In fact, in the the in United Kingdom, we did a study where we asked people about whether they, they thought following Jesus would have any impact on civic life, on generosity, and we found very little correlation uh, in, uh, in the connection between following Jesus and those other aspects of life. Christianity has become really sort of in, in the background for many people, uh, and they become indifferent to it. Well, the irrelevance of faith is just one part of the challenges that we're facing today. This has sort of been a long burn over the many, many decades, maybe even many centuries, as people have sort of put faith and religion on the shelf and sort of said that's just sort of mysticism and myth. Uh, But what we're actually seeing in our research is another kind of perception that is incredibly important for us to realize, which is extremism. And an increasing number of people in our world actually believe that Christianity is extremist. And you can see here that religion, 46% of the survey respondents that we interviewed, said they believe religion is actually part of the problem in our world. After the Paris attacks, uh, when people said they were praying for the the victims of the the terrorism, uh, some of the social media was like, we don't want your prayers in religion, we just want our friendship. They actually believe that religion is part of the problem. They don't even want a, a spiritual solution to the problem. Of, of sort of uh, grieving about this terror, the terrorist attacks. What we also discovered is that 42% said it's not just religion that's part of the problem, it's actually people of faith that are part of the problem in our culture today. And so this is part of this idea of extremism. Let me just show you some of the interesting things we found in the research. We, we went through a whole range of different kinds of beliefs and activities And we found that 93% of adults said that it was extremist to try to use religion to justify violence. Sometimes I wonder what are the other 7% thinking? Uh, But widely viewed as extremist if you use use religion to justify violence. But look at these other things that are increasingly viewed to be social extremism. 60% believe that if you try to convert somebody to your faith, that that is an extremist kind of act. We find that 52% believe that if you have the traditional view on marriage that same-sex relationships are morally wrong, uh, that that is an extremist position. We also found that 42% said that if you were to leave a good-paying job and go to serve as a missionary somewhere in a foreign culture, that would be an extremist act. So what's so interesting is that people are, you know, indifference and irrelevance says that faith can be on the margins and it doesn't really matter in our life. What, what this idea of extremism tells us is that people are saying religion actually is part of the problem and needs to be removed from our public life. This is increasing in intensity over the last decade as people are sort of wondering, how is it that we can build shared societies in the pluralistic you know, sort of context? How do, how do we honor what is different about us? Because we all bring our own types of extremism to the table as committed Christians, These aren't just things we've sort of voted on and believe that they're important because they just seem to be popular. We actually believe that that scripture matters in this context. So how do we respond to this? Well, there's a lot of different things we could think about, but we don't have to like these trends, but we do have to deal with them. Whatever our context in neighborhoods, in businesses, as faith leaders, we have to wrestle with the context of the irrelevance of faith, of the increasing social extremism of our convictions. I think this is an incredible and healthy moment for the Christian community to wrestle, to struggle with what does it mean to live out our Christianity in this increasingly skeptical age. Listen, there's all sorts of things we could talk about, but let me just give you a couple of examples of how we might respond to this. First. We could look at the fact that with this generation, one in four millennials think they'll be famous or well known by the time they're 25. This is just incredible. One in four millennials believe that they're going to be famous or well known, and you know we can say this is a narcissistic generation. They're watching too many reality television shows. They're watching you know YouTube and seeing other of their friends become you know famous and well known on, on uh, you know these digital channels. But what would we say if we if we took Ecclesiastes? A book of the Bible that actually talks about ambition and fame and influence and gave us a deep theological point of view towards this enduring question. The generation that wants to be famous and well known might find themselves, might find some truth about themselves in the pages of Ecclesiastes. This is a place where Christianity uh, isn't just trying to be relevant to be cool, but could actually help to say to be a person of faith, you could actually, you know understand the truth about ourselves. Uh, through the pages of Scripture to understand the countercultural truth of Scripture. Listen, our beliefs matter. Being irrelevant and extreme for the sake of these beliefs is a good thing when they are expressed in love for our communities and for the people around us. Another way we could uh, sort of respond to the, the sort of the trends, the sort of increasing skepticism in our culture uh, as we could follow the, the wisdom of, of Hebrews 10.24, which says, let us think of ways to motivate one another to acts of love and good faith. I think that the Christian community could be known to, uh, to recognize uh, examples and expressions of good faith in the people and places around us. There are so many ways in which we're already doing good kingdom things, and we should notice them and acknowledge them and, and try to do more of them. I've noticed in doing this research that it's so hard for us to, to acknowledge the good things sometimes even our brothers and sisters in Christ are doing. And I just wanted to sort of close by being very specific about some things that I've noticed in thinking about how it is we can acknowledge and motivate one another to do acts of love and service for the sake of Jesus in our world. My friend Pam has done an incredible job uh, for many years as a, single, as a single mom, loving and caring for her kids. Uh, and, and my friend Brooke and Christian are doing such incredible work that uh, was uh, serving in terms of racial reconciliation in Atlanta. A good friend of mine, Gareth, uh, he's a Scot. Uh, he's actually now a pastor in England. And uh, one of the cool things is he's, his story of going up and praying for people, which, by the way, majority of people believe that if you pray for a person in public, that's an extremist act. It doesn't matter to Gareth. He's actually praying for his friends, praying for people uh, in public places. Uh, and I just want to acknowledge the good work that Gareth is already doing and see him do more of that. I can think about my sister, Sherry, who, was, uh, who, who at Christmas time went and visited an Iraqi refugee family and gave them food and clothes and just loved on that family. I, I also think about another friend of mine, Lindsay McMillan, who's in Australia, who's trying to think about ways that faith ought to influence the workplace in Australia. These are all just a few examples of good faith Christians trying to do good in their world, trying to bring their faith out of the margins and into the lives of people that they
2: know. How can we be people of encouragement to,
0: to love and accept and find that our, our beliefs actually matter in this skeptical age? I think that Christians can be defined by the good that they do in the world and that this incredible moment of skepticism is a, a huge opportunity for the Christian faith today. I think we as Christians can be known for all the things we're for and for the people that we're for, rather than just for the things that we're against. Thank you.
1: few moments, I just want to talk about courage. I want to talk about what I think will be a theme that comes out throughout this event. And it's this idea of understanding where courage comes from. You see, courage, if it's just bravado, it's kind of meaningless, right? Kind of beat our chest and say, I'm courageous. But courage, where where does it have its roots? Its roots come from conviction. You see, if you don't have conviction, you can't have properly ordered courage. And you realize you can't have conviction, you can't make up conviction. We see in God's word that conviction comes from the Holy Spirit. John 16:8 says when he the Holy Spirit comes, he will convict the world and show where right and wrong and judgment lie. He will convict them of wrong. And then it gets a little harder, right? Harder to hear. Matthew 10:34, "Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth," right? These are the words of Jesus. "I did not come to bring peace, but a sword." For I am come to part asunder a man from his father and a daughter from her mother and a newly married wife from her mother-in-law and a man's foes will be they of his own household. He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he who does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. Whoever loses his life on my account will find it. You see, these are hard words to hear, right? We, we know Jesus is somebody who loves. We know peace is part of what we understand Jesus wants to bring. But there are clear words from Jesus that says, look, in some ways what I'm bringing to is a sword. And that sword, the, the tip of it is conviction. And what is the conviction that I've put in your hearts to act out and to live out? And a lot of those convictions have to do with how we love our neighbors. How we do so well at the, the great commandments, right? Mm-hmm. To love our neighbors. But also part of that sword is, man, your mother and father might not agree with you. Or your friends might might think you're wrong. And you might lose a relationship over talking about something you're convicted about. That's not easy for us in this current, cu- current cultural moment to digest, and yet it's right here in God's word. You see, spiritual courage, I think, is what's needed for us right now. I think we're walking into times where there's a lot of uncertainty. I think a lot of people in the church feel like there's not a lot of leadership. We're kind of uncertain of how to move forward. We want to be people who are faithful to the gospel and to the good news. and yet we walk into cultural circumstances that sometimes are very conflicting, hard to understand. You know, when that starts to happen, I tend to look back. I find that, that when we look further back, we can gain some confidence to realize this isn't the first time we've walked into these kind of moments. Chuck Colson reminded me of that many times. We would have these conversations about current issues, immigration. We talked about just war theory. We talked about sexuality. We talked about, you know, a lot of the hot topics. He goes, Gabe, you, you realize this isn't the first time the church has dealt with these things, right? And I'm like, well, wait, no, it kind of feels like it is. Like, it kind of feels like we haven't dealt with some of these things. He's like, no, no, no. The, Church fathers have talked about and written about this for years. You just need to do more reading. I'm like, you're right. And so it took me back. But, but I want to go way back. And I just want to read this passage from Daniel 6 that I found very compelling. Because I see Babylon as this interesting example of a time where the people of God were in a space that felt very uncomfortable. And it wasn't a place that they were necessarily uh, certain of their place in, in the culture. And then here God raises up a man named Daniel. To be a part of the kingdom, to actually have a leadership. He's somebody who had favor within this probably very um, cosmopolitan world. But in the midst of that, there's a moment. There's so many great stories here, but, but we all know the, the, the lion's den story. But do we remember why Daniel ended up in the lion's den? Because when you go back to Daniel 6, what you see is, is, is the people around him were jealous. They were jealous of his influence. And so they conspired with the king. And as they conspired with the king, they basically said to Darius, will you sign this edict or decree or this ordinance that basically says anybody for the next 30 days who doesn't pray to you will be thrown into the lion's den? And so they persuade him to do it. He's not thinking about Daniel. He's not thinking about much of anything. But he does it. And here's what's interesting about Scripture. It says this, okay? You ready for this? So King Darius signed the writing and the decree. This is verse 10. Now when Daniel knew that the writing was signed... Okay, so Daniel knew this happened, and the king was one of his friends. So his friend had signed this decree, this ordinance for the city, and it says, When Daniel knew that the writing was signed, he went into his house and opened his windows and his chamber toward Jerusalem, as he had always done. He got down on his knees three times a day, and he prayed, and he gave thanks before his God as he had done previously. You see, Daniel knew that this wasn't necessarily the popular thing to do. This wasn't going to be a socially sustainable way to live his life, right? It wasn't going to be physically sustainable to live his life. But because he had conviction deep in his heart, he had the courage to walk forward and to say, I'm going to actually go open my windows, and I'm going to pray because I trust God. And I trust the conviction in my heart of how I'm supposed to live, even in these times. And as he does that, they went before the king they tell on Daniel, the king's heartbroken because he realizes what he's done, but he has to put him into the lion's den. And then the next day, when he comes to the lion's den, he's, he's torn up all night, can't believe um, what he's done, but he says, Daniel, if your God can save you, any God can. And so he goes back, and, and of course, Daniel hasn't been touched. And so what happens? He says, the king commanded that those men who had accused Daniel were brought and cast into the den of the lions. They, their children, and their wives. And before they ever reached the bottom of the den, the lions had overpowered them and had broken their bones in pieces. Right? This is kind of gripping stuff, right? So, So the story goes like this. Daniel has conviction. He has courage to live out his conviction at a moment where he knows this is ultimate death for him. But yet he trusts God and he trusts that history's on his side. He trusts that being faithful is actually what's being called for in that moment and he walks forward into that. And in walking forward into that, he can't predict what's going to happen, but he has faith in God, and what happens, the whole story turns. The king actually comes back to God and worships God, and therefore that affects the land. And so, my point here is this. We need to be the kind of people that have courage, but not just aimless courage, not just bravado courage that's deeply rooted in conviction and conviction comes from the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit speaks to us through God's Word. One of the things I've been more convicted about than ever over the last year is our need to be back on our knees and in the Word. I've gotten away from it for a little while. You know, I'd read the Bible here and there but it became very clear to me that the only way we can make it through these times is to actually understand our history and to appreciate how God speaks to us through His Word and that in doing so, He will reveal to us truth He will reveal to us how to go forward and he'll give us that conviction that can lead to a courage that doesn't have to be mean but can be winsome, loving and kind and help our world flourish. Thank you.
3: Okay, let's begin just by uh, any any general uh, reactions
4: to either Presentation, Kenema, Alliance. lions. I hear a lot about what the the first speaker spoke about about how this generation is different. I wish though that there were statistics that showed me how the previous generations had been different. And I, I was wondering if anybody had ever seen anything like that. I just feel like I don't know that it's dr- dramatically different. I just think we know more about it, but that's just a theory. Mm-hmm. I, I just wonder.
3: Yeah, that's, that's a very good point. You you can see from the introduction I, I gave to Kenneman that he's very heavy into research and so he starts showing us a lot of that research, but yeah, mm-hmm. we can't really see the delta between this generation and another generation. That'd be that'd be
4: increasingly interesting. It was were, it was really good. Both of them I thought were good and they, they went well together, like you
5: said too. So not not a knock on it, just just curious. Yeah. I, I can't answer directly to that, but I know that mm-hmm when I was in campus ministry, our campus ministry would always put a yearly barn up, um, kind of stats at the beginning of the year, to talk about what the incoming freshmen, what they, had, what they had experienced, what they had not experienced, or something that I may have grown up with was years down, you know, like just to kind of make you realize that, that the incoming freshmen don't have the same life experiences that you may have had. And I think that, I think there is something to the fact that because it's more in the light like we can see the differences so much easier now that it may feel as if it's more different. Right. Mm-hmm. But I think that in of itself is what's different. Right. Is that sometimes ignorance is bliss? I mean we didn't know how other people in other countries may have felt about us but now we know in, in a tweet how someone in another country may feel about us. Right. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's hard for us to know how to react, that's hard for us to know how to interpret when we are, and this is, I try not to be tangential, but I think of it to, to the people who I've heard, like even like my wife's father, wrote a letter to someone over when he was in the military and waited for a response to come back. We don't have to have that, we don't have that problem. We don't have to live and wait for something. Yep. And so I think that this generation, the and maybe the generations before us are instantaneous and we're used to instantaneous. Right. And I think that the going back to what Kidman was saying of just how people view praying over someone in public, there's that initial reaction that that's how they feel. We don't know what their reaction is after that. But there's a lot of things I see in the world that my initial reaction may not be exactly what I feel when I really have time to process it. That's a good I point. think we're, we, we react much more quicker and we base everything on how we feel in that initialness. Yep. Okay. Good. Thanks, David. Um, another response. I think
4: they are different, um, but I think they're different because the context that they are living in is different. Um, and when you say day, it, you're the, the, the millennials, um, th- there's some social forces that the church has relied upon, whether knowingly or not, that have kind of served to bring uh, you know, pe- people in their 20s back into the fold, so to speak. Um, and and those, are, those aren't powerful anymore. Uh, marriage used to be the thing that you know once they w- went off to college or wherever they'll get married and then they'll come back or it's when they have get married have children then they'll, they'll come back the time between graduating high school and marriage is over a decade and that used to be a couple of years and so th- that social force and the social force of children now so much time has passed there's not the impulse to answer the question how, how do I live now that I have children the, the immediate answer isn't go back to where I know which is church because a whole decade has gone by so so there's that whole social force that um, in a sense the church is still like maybe waking up to we used to depend on this and we can't depend on it but what do we do now the really alert churches are asking that question um, and and some of them are struggling to find an answer to that. Um, and I kind of think the kind of the operating system uh, looking forward as we try to reach younger people isn't depending on the family formation to coincide with faith formation, but friendship formation to, to in a way coincide with faith formation. Right. The fact is it's already happening it's just, it's forming in a way that's going in a very <coughs> different direction than the church. Uh, and so, uh, contextually, they're, they're, they're in, they don't have available to them the, the answers uh, and the mechanisms in place. That's a very good point. All, all three of my children
3: are in that exact same boat. They're in their 20's, they're unmarried, and they're struggling to find uh, relevance what we call church and it, it makes me <coughs> question you know, is, are the forms, the structures that we have in place for what we think of as, as church as the way we're supposed to do community and God are those forms and structures sacred or are they perhaps old wineskins from UI? wine? Do those structures and forms need to be changing Really speak to
4: this generation. I think you're right. I don't think there's less spiritual energy among millennials and younger, Uh, but it's yeah, it's it's new wine and we don't have wine for it. I think you're right. Yeah, and and so yeah, they're finding that fellowship and that
6: friendship formations Mm -hmm. that you're alluding to. Backing up a little bit to the question of. Is this phenomenon new? Uh, No, it's not new.
7: In the 1950s, one of the major issues was where are all the young
6: people going? (laughs) Uh, And uh,
3: it's no, it is not new. I I really appreciate your saying that
6: (laughs) from your perspective. What I found interesting is that Josh speaks about courage this morning in his sermon or his message to us. And when we come to Sunday school or Bible study or whatever. And we speak, listening to a lesson on courage. I, I don't think that was planned. Uh, was it? No. I didn't talk to Josh about, <laughs> it, about yeah. his sermon but, topic but today. 60s, you look at the crowds and there were more people that looked like me that protested in March and there was some Caucasians mixed in and Jews mixed in in March but now younger people have more of a moral compass than former generations, they don't even go to church and my question is from whence does this come from if they don't pick up a Bible uh, if they don't Worship, they don't attend Sunday school, they don't attend church or listen to sermons like Joshua. Where does it come from? Where do they (coughs) do the Is man naturally? more people that were antithetical to the racism the Nazis, and the and they were all it was a diverse group where did they come from?
3: Yeah, I think we've, we've spent a lot more time talking about original sin and total depravity than what the first chapter of the
8: Bible teaches us they were made in the image of God
2: mm-hmm.
8: I, I think part of the issue is like Kevin mm-hmm. said people look back into history and they see the church and they see the lack of action and um, in a a lot of situations and that is that is part of what they are reacting to. Um, And I I think our challenge is how to figure out how to do the good work of the church, but then also carefully uh, differentiate ourselves from from that. Um, You know, there are a lot of different Places where people see religion as the problem, and to a large extent, we, in a very broad, we we've done that to ourselves, um, and we have just got to figure out how to send a different message. And part of that's through our actions. Part of it is it was is knowing when and where to to speak up, and and uh, carefully say that's not us. Here's what we're about, and yeah, a lot of that is through our actions.
3: A- absolutely, I think that's what Kinnaman was saying right at the end was that we have this opportunity <coughs> to really show the world what it means to uh, to be followers of Christ and he was promoting that that's more in our actions than necessarily in our beliefs they don't care what we believe until they know how much we care
7: Yeah, uh, I think one of the problems is is the more the church becomes powerful and privileged the more we lose any kind of content to the message that is attractive. One of the things that uh, uh, Kevin was with me and John Lee the other day, we were meeting with some people who are doing (coughs) some work, Africans doing work in the Cameroons and they're right in the heart of the Boko Haram situation there and Uh, living water is actually funding wells for that area and one of the leaders of that area who is a imam and a uh, I don't know I guess you call him a sultan or something of that nature but he's very very powerful but he has seen what is being done with the wells and it's been very quiet in the fact that people are just going in and African uh, Christians are doing these wells in the villages and one of the interesting things was, one of the dialogues was, uh, Islam has done nothing for us except create strife, and you guys are here, and all you're doing is drilling wells for us. And, I mean, I I think the same thing for Islam, the more powerful it becomes, the less it becomes desirable. Um, but it seems like the church has never been very good at having authority or power. We do a good job when we're in the prophetic role, but that usually means we're suffering.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Were there any of those uh, statistics that Kenneman threw out as a result of his research that uh, really surprised you? (coughs) Particularly surprised. Uh, maybe the one in four millennials think they're going to be famous. <laughs> it was a bit surprising.
6: Yeah. I found it. I found it interesting that the first talk was sort of, well, this is how the world views radical Christianity, yeah. radical faith, and the second talk was about mm-hmm. radical faith. So it's kind of like if you're going to be radical be radical for the right thing be founded on scripture and, and, and it's not you know step out is still the answer step out in faith but make sure you're doing it for the right reasons with the right heart I mean Daniel was doing something he did every day mm-hmm. you know all of a sudden take up a cause he's, he, he's who he was so I just it almost seemed like one was like Opposed to the other, but it was they, they were very much tied together. In that
3: yep. Yep. Good point. Any other thoughts on what might be our Lions Den experience today?
2: Well, I just had a, um, a thought. to your comment about where does the morality <coughs> come from? It's a morality of tolerance, the tolerance of sexuality, religious beliefs. You know, you believe what you want to believe, but don't tell me. Try
6: to convince me of your belief. You think that could help? I'm not sure. I'm, I'm not sure that that's it. I, you know, I, that is that's the
3: question
2: because I don't know. Yeah, because that's what right here all the time. Right. You know, you believe what you want to believe, but don't
3: force your beliefs on me. Yeah. Okay,
2: Senator. So I had I'm afraid I have such a low regard for letting human beings do what they holding on and pushing back the darkness. He's moving people. If you don't, if the church doesn't do it, Bono will do it. <laughs> if the church doesn't do it, Leonardo DiCaprio will do it. Yeah. Uh, Matt Damon is doing it. Yep. He's, he's the <laughs> balance to Living Water. He's promoting sewage. <laughs> sewage works yep. around. the
6: that human beings left their own devices just do stuff like that I think God moves us in, in that sense that's <coughs> how I believe we're made you. give God thank one you one of my best friends on Facebook is an atheist but he said that he likes my post because I believe in social justice so there's some people that don't even believe in God
2: that love social justice but God may believe in him <laughs> <Thank you. laughs> that's exactly
3: all very much Thank you. for your wonderful place' uh, Thank you.